Father, thank you for today. Thank you so much for our church, our church members. Thank you not only for our church, but also our disciples overseas. And thanks for great relationships that we're making with people like Steve McCoy, who want to see, just like we do, people grown up in their faith. Um, we don't want to just see converts, although that's great. We also want to see people who are discipled, who are grown into maturity, who then go off and make disciples as well. And we thank you for those relationships that we're forming and, and, and gaining from. Father, I pray that you would bless our offering this morning. I pray that you would uh, bless our time of teaching this morning as we open up your word for a little bit and learn um, one of the short stories that you uh, speak on about your kingdom. Father, we, we praise you and we thank you. It's all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. With that, we're going to have uh, Bobby Harrell come up and, uh, and continue our short, what is it called? Short <laughs> Stories Sermon Series. Short, short stories, sermon series. There we All go. All right. <laughs> Move over and let me in here. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? I'm glad you've tuned in to watch for our disciples overseas. Welcome. We're always uh, encouraged that you tune in as well. And uh, wherever you may be watching from, just settle in for a few minutes, grab your Bible, and uh, let's hear what Jesus has to say for us this morning in the short stories series. Uh, the series about short stories. Uh, uh, the reason we would have a short story series is because this is the way Jesus taught. And uh, pastors are notorious for long, rambling sermons. Uh, Jesus evidently did not give long, monotonous, rambling sermons. Uh, he taught the people in a very practical way that they could understand. Uh, he didn't use only parables. Parables is one uh, communication device that he did use. Uh, he used simile and metaphor and uh, uh, sometimes a paradox and uh, sometimes uh, sarcasm and irony. He used all kinds of uh, communication techniques as he taught them. But the one thing that should be clear to us is Jesus did not mean to be ambiguous Whatever he was saying, he expected them to understand and he communicated it in a simple and, and straightforward way where they got the point of what he was saying. Now, they often didn't like the point that he was making, uh, especially when he spoke against the Pharisees, but they understood the point that he was making. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at another parable and a, a parable is a short story. It has one main truth, typically. And in a parable, uh, Jesus has a specific goal in mind for the hearer. In other words, he wants the hearer to do something. And so the story elicits a response of doing something. Or the story is designed in a way to get the hearer to feel something. There's an emotion he wants you to experience. So the story's designed to pull that emotion out, out of your response. Or, as we're going to see this morning, Jesus sometimes tells a story because he wants us to think a certain way. He wants us to transform the way we think from maybe an old way to a new way of thinking or from a world's value system and way of thinking to the kingdom of God values and way of thinking. And that's really the story this morning, he tells a story in Matthew chapter number 20 to get us to think differently. Now, there's a reason he wants us to think differently, because obviously we're thinking incorrectly. So as I tell the story this morning, I want you to kind of do that self-reflection thing where you look into your own heart and say, wow, 
do I sometimes get my thinking messed up? Is my thinking sometimes upside down? And do I need to bring my thinking in line with God's way of thinking or uh, stay aligned to the world's way of thinking? And you'll see what Jesus pulls out in the story this morning. So it's always good before you tell one of these stories to make sure that everyone understands the setting, the context, the background, uh, the setting of for the story. So our story is in chapter 20, but I want to back up to chapter number 19 so I can just tell you some elements of the, the, the background setting for this story. In chapter 19, verses 13 to 15, the disciples are corrected for trying to keep the children away. You remember these children are running up to Jesus and he's engaging them. He's playing with them. And uh, let me pause my story here for a moment to say this to you. There is a, a crowdfunded uh, video series that's been produced called The Chosen. And I would recommend everyone go get The Chosen. It's an app. Download the app. I think the first five, six, seven videos are out there and they're paid for by people like you and I. And I think they've raised like $11 million or something. They're already working on season two. But Christians are funding this, not Hollywood, not the box office. And the Chosen uh, app series has portrayed finally, at least the ones I've watched up till this date, they've portrayed Jesus in a way that I think we uh, I'm speaking to Dave and Jeremy and our staff right here, the way we try to portray him, very much a human being, very much a man with feelings, very much a man who loved people, very much someone who was the Messiah, understanding why he was here, not trying to discover himself. Uh, uh, it portrays Mary Magdalene, I think, very correctly up to what I've read. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and... Uh, Levi, Matthew, Levi, the tax collector. I think it's been portrayed very accurately to what I've seen. And I bring this out because in the Chosen uh, video series, Jesus is portrayed as having extensive conversations with children. And so when you're watching that, don't get bored right there. When you think, oh, I want to see the miracles. I don't want to watch Jesus have conversations with children. Jesus is notorious for having conversations with children and it drove the disciples crazy because these men wanted to get to the bigger, you know, more adult things. And they kept shooing these kids away. And Jesus keeps saying, leave these kids alone. I love these kids. Let them come. I want to engage them. I have a relationship with them. We play together. And in the chosen series, he's making them, you know, he's a carpenter. He's making play sets and things for the kids to come and play with. And uh, uh, it's important. The disciples shush the kids away. Matthew 19, Jesus rebukes the disciples, not the kids, and says, leave them alone because by shooing them away, what you've said is you really don't understand what the kingdom of God is all about. You need to become like these kids because that's what the kingdom of God is about. And you need to kind of, go through some thoughts here and figure out what Jesus is saying, but he's saying something about relationships, uh, sincerity, openness, acceptance, love. He's saying something about childlike faith. He's saying something about being able to put your trust and your faith in someone. 
So he gives the disciples a great lesson right there. You progress to chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. It's the next section in chapter 19. The rich man is then instructed about his failure to love his neighbors. And he's called by Jesus to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. The next section in chapter 19, it's really verses 27 to 30. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what will we receive? Your disciples, what will we receive for leaving behind all the things we've left behind and following you? What is our reward for leaving the worldly pursuits and following you? And Jesus tells them in no uncertain terms, if you've given up anything for me, you will receive 100 fold. That's a pretty good return. I would take that. And Jesus gives them the cherry on top, eternal life, life everlasting. So they said, what's in it for us? Because that's a human thing. It's a human response. We want to know, are we going to be taken care of if we pursue Christ? Will our needs be met? Do we have a secure future? You know, what does it look like? Human nature is to look forward and say, how does this play out? Jesus said, you're secure with me. In your relationship with me, for whatever you may have given up, you've got a hundredfold coming plus eternal life. And I, and I don't know that there's an accountant in heaven keeping, you know, accounts times 100 equals. I think the point Jesus is making is you're going to be compensated. You're going to be rewarded exponentially to anything you have given up. Remember what Jesus said on one occasion, he said, if you've even given a cup of water in my name, you will not lose your reward for that. Well, that's a very simple thing. But what Jesus is saying exponentially, lavishly is how you're going to be rewarded. Now, chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, is the story I want to read to you this morning and focus on. But it's worth noting that just after our story, the verses that follow these verses in your, in, in your Bible, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus, just after this story, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I've got a request. He says, what would you like? She says, I want that my sons may sit on your right and left hand in your coming kingdom. In other words, I want the top two slots, secretary of state, vice president, you know, speaker of the house, you know, whatever. I want the top two slots in the coming kingdom to be given to my boys. And this becomes an occasion for Jesus to teach the disciples, which doesn't just include those 12 men, but now somebody's mother, the women that are following the disciples, the broader group of disciples now have an opportunity to be instructed uh, that things in the kingdom of God are not always the way you think they are. Jesus now begins to teach about what we call the reversal of kingdom values. In the kingdom of God, sometimes things are flipped. In other words, in, in our humanness and in the world system, we think one way. But in the kingdom of God, he thinks a different way on some issues. And he's going to call some of those issues out. For example, all of us who went to some kind of business school or took business classes and we were trained in business models, we all understand a top-down business model. Uh, it is the basic business model of American business where you have a president, a CEO, someone at the very chairman of the board, someone at the top of the food chain, 
And uh, then, you know, directors, board members, whatever, vice presidents, on down, manager, directors, managers, you know, associates, et cetera. And you build out a whole business full of employees and people working together for that business's mission statement. Top down business model. This is the world's business model. This is the way the world thinks. This is the way most governments of the world are run with a dictator on top, you know, and uh, in the top down business model that you see on the screen right here, uh, your value to the organization is determined by how many people serve you. In other words, the CEO at the top in a big American corporation, they get bonuses that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Whereas this guy may be paid eleven fifty an hour. But in this model, because you're at the top, your value to the company is determined by how many people serve you in the organization. This is the way the world thinks. And when we talk about reversal of kingdom values, what Jesus begins to teach the disciples is that in the kingdom of God, this system is flipped upside down. He begins to teach his disciples, the one who is the greatest among you will be the servant of all. In the kingdom of God, you turn the business model of the world upside down and you begin to think differently. You think my value to the kingdom of God is based on how many people I serve, not how many people serve me. This model is what Christians refer to as servant leadership model. It's so powerful. It's so effective. It's such a blessing to be a part of an organization like this. It's so enriching and transformative to live and work and move in this type of environment that many of our modern businesses have adopted this. I remember when I went back to study for one of my later theological degrees, one of the courses that we took was uh, on servant leadership models in modern American business. And I remember I had to do, write several research papers about businesses who had adopted this model. REI, Zappos, Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby, the Container Store. I mean, just as I'm rattling off the names, you're like, these are wildly successful businesses. Of course they are. <laughs> Who doesn't want to work uh, in an environment where your boss doesn't berate you, but instead, how may I serve you? Uh and who doesn't want to work in an organization where people say please and thank you and it's my pleasure to serve you? Uh, it's uplifting. It's transformative. Uh, many companies have adopted Christ's servant leader model. And those companies, not surprisingly to any Christian certainly, have flourished because the employees are happy. They're, they're stakeholders in the success of the company. Now, this reversal is what of values, this reversal of rethinking what it means to be a leader. What a timely, I guess, lesson for us here at Cornerstone as we are in, begin to nominate even today uh, those men and women who are going to serve us as deacons. And, and you're saying uh, not who is a good ruler, not who's good at bossing us and giving us orders. We're looking for spirit filled men and women who serve the body of Christ with excellence. We're looking for people who use their 
Holy Spirit given gifts to lift the entire congregation. And we have different gifts. Some are encouragers, some are helpers, some are administrators, but everyone using their gifts lifts the body of Christ to be everything that God wants us to be. Now there's the setting, both before and after the story that Jesus told. It's important because when you hear the story now, you're gonna be saying, ah, I see that reversal of values and everything that's being said all fits together very nicely. Finally, in chapter 20, we watch as two blind men come to Jesus. He asked them the same question that he asked Miss Zebedee, the same question that he asked the disciples. The, the two blind men come, Jesus says, what do you want? What, what do you need? What can I do for you? And they said, we wish that we could see. We would just like to have our eyes to be opened. Jesus said, not a problem, I can handle that. And he opens their eyes. And as a result of their eyes being opened, they didn't come seeking to be the Secretary of State and the Minister of Defense. Theirs was a very simple but profound request. If we could just see, we could just have our eyes opened, it would transform our lives. Jesus said, you got it, guys. And he opened their eyes. And as a result of their eyes being opened, they followed Jesus. Now, you know the full context before and after the story. Here we go. Matthew chapter 20. This morning, I'm going to read through from the, the CSB. Some of you may not be as familiar maybe with that version. It's a, it's a fairly new version, very nice version of uh, translation. It's an update on the Holman Broadman Christian Standard Christian Version, Christian. American Revised. HC. Okay, so confusing. So it's an update on the HCSB, yeah. but it's the CSB, and uh, I'll read from it this morning. Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning. Let me pause right here. This is called the parable of the vineyard workers. If you have a paper Bible that has little headings in it, you'll probably see in your paper Bible or whatever version you're using, the parable of the vineyard workers workers. I want to pause right here just to say to you, when Jesus starts talking about vineyard workers, although you may not be familiar with a winery, the people of Israel were profoundly familiar with vineyards, olive yards, if that's the right word, wineries. They were family owned. They were everywhere. For that 50 persons that are in our Cornerstone congregation that have signed up to go to Israel next year, uh, you, you're going to see vineyards everywhere across Israel. It's a part of their culture. It's an agrarian society, especially in the first century. So when Jesus begins to speak about grapes and grapevines and wineries, it's not like a stretch to figure out what he's saying. They are intimately attached to this picture and this story, and they will instantly understand what he is saying. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning, 6 a.m., to hire workers for his vineyard. So just imagine the scene. There's a little village. There's people who come to the town square. And if you need day laborers, you go there and you say, hey, I've got work. Let's agree on a wage. My vineyard's the third one on the right. Here's what I need done today. Vines trimmed, grapes gathered, whatever. And they make an agreement and they hire the day workers to come to the vineyard. Verse two, after agreeing, the workers 
on one denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. So he said, come work. Here's a day's wage. They said, yes, that's a good deal. We'll come and work for the denarius. He sent them into the vineyard for the day. Verse three, when he went out about nine in the morning, three hours had passed. He saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he said to them, hey, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. Verse five, the vineyard owner comes into the marketplace about noon and again at about three. And he went and did the same thing, found more workers and sent them into the vineyard. Verse six, then about five, this is 5 p.m. This is almost quitting time. There's about an hour. The workday is going to be over. Maybe you see what I'm saying? We're right at the end of the workday. At five o'clock, he went into the marketplace and found others standing around. And this is what he said to them. Quote, you also go into my vineyard, he told them. Verse eight, and when evening came, the, land, the owner of the vineyard told the foreman, call now the workers and give them their pay. Here comes the reversal of values. Watch for it. Starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five, the last people hired were the first people paid. What's the accounting term? LIFO, last in, first out. So the last in got paid first, one denarius. Now stay with me. They didn't book work but an hour and they got a full day's wage. You know what I would be saying? High five to me, score. You know, what a what a generous, awesome man to work for is this vineyard on you. Okay, verse 10. So when the first ones came, they've been working since 6 a.m., they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each, one each, days of labor. 11, when they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day's work in the burning heat. The landowner replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree to work in my vineyard for one denarius? Take what is yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? Let those words pierce your heart this morning. Are you jealous because I'm generous? Reversal of values. Watch the summary statement. So the last will be first and the first last. Now, it's important to know the context. The context is blind men asking for sight and Miss Zebedee asking for positions and Peter asking, what do we get for all the work that we put into your vineyard? The story sitting right in the middle of all of that conversation. Let me read that thesis line again, but let me read it from the NIV this time. Matthew 20, verse 15, NIV. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, says the vineyard owner. Sure you do. But watch his next statement. Or are you envious because I am generous? 
Some of the workers were envious towards their co-workers because the landowner was so generous. Now, here's the point of Jesus' story. Don't be envious because God is generous. Doesn't God have the right to bless people and be generous and accept people into his kingdom or whatever words you want to use? If God is doing what God is doing, don't be envious because God is so generous. Now, let's see if we can make some kind of application to our own lives this morning. You see, discipleship is not about personal advancement. We are not followers of Christ so that we can get something. Uh, discipleship is not about personal advance, advancement. We're not following Christ so we can get rich. Those people who are preaching that prosperity gospel and who are in this to get rich, these are wolves in sheep's clothing. They should be exposed and should not be followed. And yet they have massive followings and they are fleecing God's people and becoming wealthy off of trading on the kingdom. Jesus said, you've approached it entirely wrong if that is your position. We are not disciples so that we may be wealthy. You may be wealthy already. Uh, most of the people in the Old Testament that are highlighted are wealthy individuals. Abraham, Moses, and I can go on and on. Solomon, David, they're wealthy individuals, okay? God's not speaking against wealth. What he's speaking against is the motive to get wealthy as your motive for following him. Uh, we don't follow Christ to gain wealth. We're not his disciples because we're trying to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to get fame and fortune and notoriety, and we're not trying to build that worldly pyramid where we can look down and see how many people are beneath us in the food chain, how many people are serving us. We're not building a kingdom. Being a disciple means that I love God and I love my neighbor to the point that I can rejoice with them when others are being blessed. Now, I use I statements before I get to we. Uh, my dilemma is not that I don't experience the blessings of God myself. I am blessed, and I thank God for that. My dilemma is that I don't rejoice with you when you're blessed. I'll say it again. My dilemma is not that I'm not blessed. My dilemma is that I don't rejoice with you as I should when you are blessed. You see, if we believe that being a follower of Christ means that God is obligated to give us this life of health and this life of wealth and this life of prosperity, which is being taught all over the world right now, then we're living a false narrative of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That is not the definition of discipleship. All over our country and all over our community, by the thousands, believers are engaging churches that are telling them how they can be personally wealthy, how they can never be sick, how they can, you know, be great and be somebody and be people of, of big reputation. Jesus corrected this type of thinking in this chapters 19 and 20, and he said, stop asking what's in it for me. I'm going to take care of you. Yes, Peter, a hundred times. I'm going to blow your mind with how richly I'm going to repay you. I'm going to blow your mind. Don't worry about that. But stop asking what's in it for me. That's not our driving motivation. 
But Christians, it seems like today, are asking, what's in it for me? We come to church, we hear the sermon, we get in our cars, we go to Uncle Julio's, we order some nachos, we get right back on with our life, and we still hold on to that envy that's in our hearts towards other people that we perceive are being blessed more than us. That's not what Christ imagined uh, for the Christian life. It's not enough for us to say, I believe in Jesus and I say yes to his teachings. Being a disciple is about having your attitudes transformed. Let me be very specific. This parable is designed to get you to think differently. Christ is trying to transform our thinking about what our motives are for following him and about how generous God is and not to worry about being taken care of and let God do what he wants to do and learn to rejoice with others when God blesses them. There's a great passage in Colossians 3, 5. It says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul's teaching the European Christians there, you got to change your thinking. You got to change your attitudes. We're going to get rid of these behaviors and we're going to get some different behaviors. So let me ask you the assessment question this morning. Here's your personal assessment of question. Does it bother me when good things happen to people around me? Now just think about that. When you see other people promoted, blessed, new car, new house, promotion at work, you know, children being blessed, parents being, when you see God blessing people, does it bother you when good things happen to people around you? And I think if you really could be honest with yourself and with God this morning, you might answer, yeah, sometimes it does bother me. Sometimes I have the wrong kinds of feelings that bubble up inside of me and the wrong kinds of thoughts. So let's remember the point of the story. Don't be envious because God is generous. If God's blessing someone, don't be envious about that. God's going to take care of you also. Now, let me make some observations from the text. They'll go very quickly. My first observation that I want you to uh, give assent to is God is good. Certainly everyone listening to this message this morning could all say amen to God is good. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham got a little sideways with God and they're having this little back and forth over Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and, and some political events and current events, social events that were happening. And, and as Abraham and God worked it out, uh, as they talked back and forth, there's a great verse here in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham says to God, God, you could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You just could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? That's a great question, isn't it? Let, let me ask you this question this morning. Will God do the right thing? Will God do the right thing? Now, I'll tell you what will solve a lot of our problems when we think we're being treated unfairly or that the situation is not right. Listen, will God do the right thing? Can we all this morning have confidence in our hearts that God is good 
and he will do the right thing. Sometimes people kind of run amok in their theology and they think, well, God is sovereign and God is this and God is that. Let me tell you what the Bible says about God. You'll find that other S word I just used about five times, not necessarily attributed to God. What you'll find in the scripture is God is good and God is merciful and God is long suffering. And the overriding attribute of God is God is love. That is the character of God as revealed by Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh. What you want to know about God and can't sometimes perceive from reading the Old Testament, you can perceive by looking at the life of Jesus Christ. He shows us who God is and what God is like. The psalmist, in my opinion, this is what we would call, Jeremy, the playlist of the Old Testament, the Psalms. If you want to know what the, the how in tune the psalmists were with their theology and writing songs, one of their major themes is the goodness of God. When the psalmists prepare the playlist for the church to sing, matter of fact, you should memorize some of these. They're great psalms, and some of these are only like five verses long, very easy to memorize psalms. Psalm 86, verse 5, For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, you abound in faithful love to all who call on you. Psalm 100, verse 5, for the Lord is good. This is who God is. He is faithful. His love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Can we count on God? He has faithfulness in all generations. Will God do what is right? Sure he will. Look at the psalmist wrote in Psalm 106, verse 1. Hallelujah. <laughs> Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? For he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Now, I will say this to you. That's my God. A God that is faithful in his love and his goodness endures to all generations. He is reaching out to us to love us, to forgive us, to bring us into a relationship with him. And when your mind begins to drift towards envious thoughts, the fix, the correction, is to engage your mind by praising God's goodness. When you start thinking, wow, God did something for them and that makes me mad. I'm being mistreated. Stop. No, God is good. And he's generous. And he's going to care for you, Peter, and for you, James, and for me, Bobby, and for you as well. And when your mind starts having those upside down values and you start becoming envious towards others or thinking that God's not being fair, what you need to do is you need to start praising God's goodness. That's why it's great to memorize some of these Psalms where you can then say, okay, Bobby, stop being stupid. God is good and merciful and his love endures to all generations. You start quoting those verses and remind yourself of the goodness of God. I think this morning we could all agree, certainly those listening to this broadcast, God is good and he will always do what is right. My second observation is that God is a rewarder and it's okay to expect a reward. Uh, sometimes when Susan and I do parenting classes, we're asked about, you know, rewarding your children or, or even maybe sometimes motivating them with reward. It's not an inappropriate thing. Uh, the expectation of reward and the response reward is normal, uh, I think, uh, human behavior. And there's something in us that responds 
to that. Reward's not a bad motive. And I think anticipating rewards is, is, is a way for us to understand what pleases God and what he wants for us. He wants to reward you. It's clear in the scripture. He wants to give to his children. Um, we know this because Jesus promises rewards for being disciples. We know from that what he said to Peter and John and others, that being a follower of Christ is not a wasted endeavor. Uh, Paul echoed this again in 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God is going, he's going to blow your mind with his generosity. You say, well, Abraham's going to get a bigger reward than us. How do you figure that? Well, Elijah and David, they've got this massive reward coming and these incredible positions coming in the kingdom of God. How do you figure that? I just read the parable to you. Some of us who've come late in history here and who are just getting into the vineyard at the 11th hour are going to be some of the first to be rewarded. Remember, in the kingdom of God, you can't always figure out the values are reversed sometimes. And those late to the game get a bigger reward as those early to the game because they were willing to get in the game. They're willing to get on the mission of Jesus Christ. The disciples are, are like us, I guess. That human nature comes out in the Gospels. They were into calculating risk versus reward. If I do this, here's my risk. Well, here's my exposure. What's my reward going to be? And, and they were into seeking positions of honor. It's everything that Americans are wrapped up in right now. You know, what's my pay going to be if I make this move? What's my risk? What's my reward? Or if I launch my own company, what's my risk? What's my reward? What's the payoff? When Peter asked Jesus, what will I get? He was assured by Christ that the reward for being a disciple was incredible. It was humongous. It was great. But at the same time, Jesus reminded the disciples not to be presumptuous about who was going to get what in the kingdom of God because God doesn't always do things the way you expect them to be done. Those at the 11th hour getting into the vineyard were paid first. Those who were hired first thought they should get more. The parable defies our human logic on work, reward, and justice. And God's kingdom is not regulated by our human perceptions of what is fair because the kingdom of God is governed by God's incredible generosity. And he may give to somebody that you think's not deserving, but he thinks they're deserving. Remember the words of the parable. Can't he do with his own what he wants to do? If he wants to be generous to someone, can't God be generous? God wants to bless your neighbor. Isn't that awesome? That God is so generous that he wants to bless your neighbor or your friend or your associate or, 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 or someone else. We learn that no one should begrudge a good man who gives to the poor. It's one of the takeaways. Someone wants to be generous and give. Well, praise God. We learn that we should not resent God when he shows goodness and mercy to those around us. We learn this. God is a disproportionate rewarder. We think in terms of getting what you deserve or getting what's fair. God is a disproportionate rewarder. It means that when God gives, 
He doesn't give just what you deserve. He lavishes his giving on you. Disproportionate to your service, God will give. Disproportionate to what you deserve, God will give. Whatever, make, make it a really kind of a simple statement, whatever we get from God, it will always be more than we deserve. It will never be less than we deserve. And in that, you can praise God this morning. Here's my third observation. We're supposed to be rejoicing when others are blessed. Uh, as a body of Christ, the Cornerstone family should learn to rejoice with others when we see them being blessed. Why do we find it difficult to rejoice over good that's coming in the life of other people? I don't know, but sometimes we do, don't we? It's that old nature that doesn't want to rejoice when they see someone else being blessed. We have two social media, two predominant social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram. They are, the entire platforms are built on the premise that people are longing for someone to affirm them. People are longing for someone to rejoice with them. When I see people post throughout the week, it's almost as if they're crying out, please give me a thumbs up. Please give me a like. Please, someone, anyone out there, someone take notice of what's happening in my life. Or something good happened to me. Can someone give me a high five? Can someone please rejoice with me? Let me make it more simple. Can someone please care about me? Can someone please acknowledge that I matter and that my life matters and what's happening to me matters to someone other than me? Uh, listen, I, I see a lot of social media as a cry for love. And yet sometimes I'm resistant to give people the love I know they're crying for. What's wrong with me? Why am I so broken? Surely that needs to be transformed in me and in you. When we see other people needing love, give it to them. Pour it on them. When you see someone rejoicing in their new car, their puppy, or their promotion, or, or, or you know, their kid finally is potty trained, let's give them some love. Let's give them a like and a love and a praise God, and I'm glad you're blessed, and a congratulations on the promotion. Uh, don't let it make you upset or critical. We can't sit around calculating what we think is due to us. And we can't sit around being envious of other people because of what they've received from God. I think one of the verses that will help you reverse your critical nature towards others is Romans 14, 4. It says, who are you that judges another's household servant before his own Lord? He stands or falls and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Let me put that in really simple terms for you. Who are we to judge somebody else? Who are we to judge another man's servant? That's not our business. To the Lord, they will stand or, or fall. Uh, uh, let's just love people and rejoice with people. We know that envy is not Christ-like. It's something that needs to be removed from our hearts. But here's my word of caution. Whenever you try to remove something bad from your heart or from your attitudes, you need to replace it with something good. Don't just empty bad things and leave this empty vacuum. 
fill it with something that's positive and something that's good and something that's God. It's not enough for me to say, let's get rid of the fleshly attributes. I need to say to you, let's get rid of the fleshly attributes and be transformed by bringing in the Christ-like attributes, which the Holy Spirit will assist with. This is his work. This is your right in his wheelhouse now. He's all about transforming you to be like Christ. So since we're not allowed to harbor displeasure at someone else's success, since we're not allowed to be envious people, with what do we replace it? Well, there's a great passage, and I would recommend really everyone read Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 is one of those really definitive texts on replacement values. Uh, as a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit's trying to push these things out and pull these things in, these attributes of Christ. For example, Romans 12.10, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. That means, no, you first, not me. No, seriously, you first, not me. No, please, you first. Let's outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Romans 12, 13, skip down a verse, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. Pursue hospitality means open your doors, fire up the grill, and invite people over to eat your stuff. Not hoard your stuff, share your stuff. Your home is one of the greatest tools of ministry that God has given you. Whether you own, rent, have an apartment, a condo, a townhouse, it doesn't matter. Whatever you have is given to you by God, and it's a great tool for ministry. Your big green egg is a tool for ministry. If you have a pool, it's a tool for ministry. If you have a sprinkler and a water hose in a yard, it's a tool for ministry. You know, we need to think in terms as God's disciples of all that we have has been given to us by God and therefore is used for the mission of God. And rather than be hoarders, let's be givers. Use hospitality. Let's be, let's be professionals at hospitality. Let's be crazy lavish with hospitality. Let's share our stuff and share our lives with others. Romans 12, 15, here's more great replacement verses. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, it doesn't mean you're sad. It means they're sad and you love them so much you can be sad with them. Listen, you may be sad and somebody else is rejoicing because something good happens. You may be feeling bluesy, but yet you can set your feelings aside for a moment to rejoice with them because you love them so much. Being a disciple of Christ means loving others so much that when they're blessed, we can hug their neck and say, I rejoice with you and really mean it. I'm glad that God is blessing you. I'm glad that God is caring for you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what ministry looks like in the New Testament. This is what being a disciple of Christ looks like. Christ is calling you to give up the quest for being first. That almost feels anti-American to say that out loud, doesn't it? We're so built on that me first kind of concept here. You know, advance yourself, push yourself as high as you can. Listen, Christ is calling you to give up the quest for being first. Now, it doesn't mean you can't succeed in business and be a great athlete or whatever. Be a champion. Be oh, fine. But the pursuit of your honor is not what being a disciple of Christ is all about. Remember the upside down org chart. 
you can do much better with your life than always trying to be number one. Always trying to be the person in the spotlight. Because those who are living to be first are going to come in last, according to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying they don't get to heaven. I'm not implying any deep theological thing there. I'm just saying, notice the reversal of values in the Jesus kingdom story. The kingdom of God is like, things are flipped upside down. So don't pursue the quest to be first. Pursue the quest to serve others and love others and rejoice with others. Let me ask you a question. Do you get upset? when other people around you are blessed. I think we ought to bow our heads this morning and repent of that as a sin. It's not our normal confession of sins. I don't think normally most of us would just bow our head on a Monday and say, God, forgive me, I'm envious because I have a bad feeling in my heart towards this person who got something good in their life. But I think this morning after hearing the story, we probably should repent of that as sin today and say, God, that shouldn't be a part of my life and I need to transform my thinking by the power of the Holy Spirit to be something other than that. I think you need to be honest with yourself this morning. Look down in your heart. Ask yourself this question. Do I have a critical spirit towards others? You'll often hear me joking or in jest say from the platform, criticism is not a spiritual gift. And it's not, and I mean it jokingly many times, but the text this morning really compels the question, do you have a critical spirit towards others? Is that critical spirit there because really you're envious of them? Because you see they have something or some blessing from God that you perceive you didn't get. That's a sin. Envy is a sin. And we need to confess that to God this morning and ask the Holy Spirit to help us replace that with a Christ-like attribute. Are, are all of us willing this morning to rejoice when others are being blessed? Now, this message is great for me and great for you because having said this, I would have the expectation this week that social media would blow up with love. And if you're hesitant to say, well, if I blow social media up with love, everybody know I'm just responding to the message this morning. That's okay. Because sometimes we need to just do it to get in the habit of it. We should blow social media up with love. We should be known by what Christ said his disciples should be known for. What did he say? The world will know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. Now, I don't mean it. do it in a fake way. I mean, do it in a serious, I'm trying to get over my envy way. Listen, why don't we blow people up with love? Now, I can tell you, feelings often rise up in me when I want to blow somebody up. I wish I could tell you how many messages I have backspaced. Now, what I'm saying to you this morning is it's not enough to backspace. Now you backspace the critical message out and you type the blessing out and you learn to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. This morning, let's confess our sin and let's say to God, I wanna be who you want me to be. I want these kingdom values in my life. 
God, you're going to have to replace some of these bad things in my life with Christ-like, spirit-driven attributes. And Holy Spirit of living God, I yield to you. Generate that fruit in my life. Can you imagine being a part of a church where no one had a top-down mentality, but everybody was trying to find out who they could serve? Can you imagine what it'd be like to be a part of a church where everybody said, how may I serve you? How may I love you? How may I affirm you? How may I bless your life with the spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit has given me to exercise in this body? I can tell you that's the kind of church I want to be a part of, and that's the kind of church we have. Let's make it even more so by yielding to the Holy Spirit and letting him generate this in our lives. Let's pray together right now. Father, we bow before you. And Lord, I think it's appropriate, first of all, that we confess our sins. Lord, in some corporate way and maybe in some individual way right now, Lord, all over the community, we bow before you. We say, forgive us of our envy. Lord, forgive us when we have done exactly the opposite of what you've taught in the word this morning. Lord, we've had some bad resentment rise up in us when we saw our neighbor being blessed or we saw a fellow believer being, or we even saw a lost person being blessed. And Lord, something rose up in us that was ugly. It looked like envy or jealousy or even maybe some bad feelings towards you, thinking we weren't being treated fairly or justly. And God, we want to confess all of that to you this morning as sin and ask you to forgive us of it as a church and as individuals. And God, we know it's not enough to ask you to remove these things from our lives, but we need to replace them. And Lord, this week we're going to take some positive steps to show love, to rejoice in your goodness, to trust in your care and your reward towards us, to rest in your goodness, but to affirm others and, and to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to weep with those who weep, to use hospitality, to love one another. And Lord, in our flesh, it's not enough to make a a really good try at it. Holy Spirit, we yield to your power. We yield to your working in our lives and we ask for your help and your partnership in your control over our emotions. Lord, we assume this morning is our interpretation that you've given us this story to get us to change the way we think. So God, I wanna pray for me and for this whole church body. Lord, please change the way we think so that we might think more like you. Lord, thank you for a wonderful church of servant people who are willing to serve one another. I know that many hearing my voice right now are gonna be great people in your kingdom because already they are great people in your kingdom serving one another in love. Father, help us to obey your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We're going to end this broadcast. And uh, as we pull this broadcast down, for those of you who are members, log on to your device, one per person on Zoom, and in just give us just a minute or two to bring this down, and we'll join you on Zoom in just a moment. Okay? God bless you. See you in a minute.